Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. It's wonderful to be here. Like I said, uh, forgive me, like Aaron said, uh, I'm, I'm from England. Uh, are you okay understanding me? Yeah. Do you understand so far? I'm, I'm actually not from England. I'm a Welshman. Anyone know where Wales is? Let's have a cheer for Wales. I'm not going to preach you in Welsh, don't worry. I actually couldn't. I only know two words in Welsh. Uh, hello, which is Borodar, and toilet, which is Tibach. Uh, two essential words whenever you're travelling to Wales. It's wonderful to be here, uh, and uh, I wanted to make this trip. I have been to the Presbyterian Church of America's General Assembly uh, that was in Birmingham. Sorry, let me translate Birmingham uh, just this last week. Uh, and, but really, the main reason for coming to across the pond to this wonderful country was to come here and to simply say what I'm about to say, and it's this. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I'm a church planter in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm just going to introduce myself, show you a few, few slides before we get to God's word. There's my family. Uh, they have to put up with me. Uh, five roses and one thorn. <laughs> right there, there's my, my wife, Davinia. Alicia is my eldest. She's 16. Amelia is 14. Uh, Beatrice is, is 12. And Arabella is 7. We were hoping Arabella, as the fourth, would be quiet and timid and compliant. Yeah, that says it all. You know what's, what she's really like. Um, so there we are, and we moved to Oxford uh, in 2018. As Aaron said, uh, half of the life of our church has been in COVID. Uh, we, we actually had 84 Sunday mornings where we couldn't meet for worship. We're 84 Sunday mornings on Zoom. So I actually have a PTSD reaction now to Zoom. If I click on a Zoom meeting, I start drooling and rocking, and you know, I'm so concerned about it. I'm so fearful of where we might be going. But there's my family there. The next slide uh, shows you just, I had to just make sure you knew where Wales was. <laughs> it, it, it worries me. Um, so there's, there's the great country of Wales there in red. And just so you can orientate yourself, there's London, you can see. Uh, I spent 10 years in Cheltenham which is uh, an hour west, kind of west, of Oxford. That's, I was a minister there for 10 years, took on a church plant. We grew, the Lord blessed us. And then I was called and sent to Oxford, which is, which is kind of in, in the middle. You might wonder what, what Oxford is like. Well, our next slide here will uh, show you a little bit. Uh, I don't know if any of you can read Latin, but you know, th this is the Oxford Shield. That's the Oxford Shield. So this is, and this is the motto for the University of Oxford. Okay, and it, and it is, I'm not going to, well, it, it's Dominus Illuminate Mia, which is the Lord is my light. Anyone know which psalm that's from? I don't want to test you. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light. And sadly, Oxford does not have the Lord as her light any longer. So we planted the gospel for various reasons. Uh, Oxford is highly strategic. Uh, we get 30 to 40,000 students from over 150 countries every year. I love telling the story of, of, of a girl who came to Oxford. Uh, she was from Pakistan. Pakistan is probably the, one of the hardest to reach countries in the world for the gospel. And she came to Oxford and she, she met Christians. She went to church. She became a Christian. Praise the Lord. Uh, and then she went home, back to, back to Pakistan, and she shared the gospel with her family. And her family became Christians. Praise the Lord. And her dad then trained for, for Christian ministry and is now an indigenous Pakistani preacher of the gospel. 
So you couldn't, you couldn't throw, you, you know, you could send 10 Andy Youngs to Pakistan and they would, I couldn't be as effective as an indigenous Pakistani minister reaching his own people with the gospel. And that's, Oxford provides that strategic uh, potential because the world comes to Oxford. If we can grab some of these students, bring them to Christ and send them out, then you can see what the Lord, what the Lord can do. Uh, my next slide shows you where we're meeting. We're meeting right in the center of Oxford in this beautiful chapel called St. Luke's Chapel. There's a luncheon after the service that's downstairs, and I'm going to be going into a lot more detail. Not that much detail. Don't worry, it's not going to be five hours long. But I'll go into a bit more detail on this. I just wanted to show you a few slides to so you can get to know who I am and what I'm doing a little bit. We're right there in the center of Oxford. This is the inside of the building. It's beautiful. It's owned by the university. It's a chapel building. Um, and as you can see, the Lord has really blessed our work. We've got a problem every Sunday morning now. Um, it's a really good problem to have, but for leaders, it's a, it's, it's, it gives us heartache. And that is we're running out of, of chairs. In fact, we've literally, uh, two Sundays ago, myself and two other guys had to stand during the service. Someone else was preaching. Because there literally was no... And all the babies were on the mums and dads' laps, and et cetera, et cetera. You can see we're, we're, really, we're really full there. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, but it's a problem, and that problem, in the midst of that problem, the Lord has opened a possible door. There's a building right in the center of, of Oxford called the Northgate Hall. There it is. It's, it's an old, it, it, it was built as a church, as a Methodist church in the 1860s. Uh, it's now owned by the city council, and that you should say boo when I say that. Okay? It's owned by the city council. Thank you. Uh, but it's now, it's now a restaurant called Bill's Restaurant. And uh, I'm going to show you, so I've actually got a video to show you uh, at the luncheon of the inside of this building. And it provides wonderful opportunity. It was failing as a restaurant before COVID. COVID hit and it just decimated uh, the, the restaurant industry in Oxford, which is obviously a bad thing, but a good thing for us. And we're praying that the, the, the Lord would give us this building. So if you do, if the Lord would put on your hearts, if you, Oxford Presbyterian Church, and you'd pray for the work there, pray for those things. Pray that we'd get the Northgate Hall. It would be a wonderful space for us, uh, right in the city centre. Um, and it would be a really a, a snubbing of the devil's nose. Because opposite that building is something called the Oxford Union. This is somewhere where the university invites world-renowned celebrities and professors and philosophers to come and espouse their various um, ideas. Uh, you know, so well, I won't name anyone, but you can just imagine right opposite this building is that. And it's like the Lord is saying, here's an opportunity not to come into the back door of the devil's kingdom, but to bash the front door down and take a seat in his lounge. And so do pray for us that we would get that building. Uh, we want to continue to reach and serve students and see students come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We regularly have non-Christian students among, in our services. Um, uh, pray, we need, we need leaders we need elders and deacons, so pray that the Lord would raise up those men to be elders and deacons among us, and then pray that sinners would be saved as well. That's our great desire. Uh, against popular opinion, uh, Britain is not a Christian country. About 2 to 3% of the population will attend church regularly, and that's any church, and by regularly, that's defined as one once every six or seven weeks. So you can just see the need for the gospel 
in the United Kingdom and someone like Oxford. Thank you so much to Dwayne, Daniel, Tim, Aaron, and this church for your support. It means the world to us, and we couldn't do what we're doing without you, so thank you. It's a great privilege for me to open up God's Word with you now. So we're going to turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is going to come up on the screen for you. Before I read God's Word, let's bow and ask God to help us to understand his word and apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, thank you that you are God and that we are your people. We've already celebrated in our service this morning that we are your sheep and you are our shepherd. We pray that these familiar truths as we look at Psalm 23 would come with a new comforting force to all of us this morning. That as we consider that you are our shepherd, that you lead us, you guide us, you provide for us, you are everything we need, that Lord, we would put our faith, our hope, our trust, our all in you. And we would go into this week knowing that we are your sheep and you are our shepherd. And that means we are safe whatever happens to us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read these wonderful words from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Have you heard of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson? Sherlock Holmes and Do- I just wanted to make sure. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson uh, went camping once. They arrived at the campsite early. They set up their small two-man tent. They got a fire going. They had an enjoyable dinner, an evening, toasting marshmallows, etc. And they went to bed and got off to a a good night's sleep. In the middle of the night, Dr. Watson was abruptly and rudely woken up by Sherlock Holmes, elbowing him in the side. And uh, Sherlock Holmes said to him, look up, Watson, what do you see and what does it mean? Now, Watson was used to this kind of activity being put on the spot by Sherlock Holmes, testing his mental ability to observe things. So he looked up from his bed and saw the sky and he saw the stars and he saw the moon and he started to expostulate on the importance of the Pleiades being in this particular place and that star being over there and the movement of Jupiter around Saturn. And in the middle of this, Holmes turned to him and said, No, you buffoon. It means someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Which is as much as to say, it's very easy to miss the wood for the trees, isn't it? 
it's very easy to miss the wood for the trees. And that's certainly true when we get to the Bible. There are certain passages of Scripture which are incredibly familiar to many of us, to many of us who are Christians. And Psalm 23, probably together with the Lord's Prayer, is probably one of the most familiar passages of Scripture. And that's dangerous because it means when we we come to it this morning, you could quite, and I could quite easily just switch off. I know what this is all about. Some of us could probably even close our eyes and recite Psalm 23. It's so familiar. But just because we know it and just because it's familiar to us doesn't mean we have fully grasped its meaning or it doesn't mean we need its full meaning to be brought home to us again. I would suggest we need Psalm 23 every day of our lives. We need to be reminded relentlessly that God is our shepherd and we are his sheep. You know, it might be, I don't know, I I don't know any of you, I'm sorry, I'd love to get to know you more and I hope to over, over the course of today. It might be that some of you are new, maybe this is your first time here in Deer Creek. Uh, church. Uh, Maybe you're not even a Christian. You're most welcome. You're in the best place in the world. And dare I say, you're about to have a real treat. It's not that I'm going to be preaching. It's that we're going to be thinking about Psalm 23. This is wonderful stuff. And it's immensely encouraging. Before we dive in, I just want to note two or three things that are really remarkable about this psalm. And here's the first one, who it's written by. Do you notice the psalm actually does have, we didn't have it in our reading, but if you've got your Bibles open, don't worry if you don't, I'll read it, because there's only two words. It's this, of David. David, King David. But who was David before he was a king? He was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to be on the hillside at nighttime and to look after the sheep. But that's why this is remarkable. Here is a shepherd talking about his shepherd, He views himself as a sheep. Isn't that remarkable? That King David, first of all, didn't see himself as a king or a shepherd, though he was both. He saw himself as a sheep who knew his shepherd, the Lord, his God. And that leads us to the second remarkable thing, and that is the imagery that's used in this psalm. It's very obvious, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The imagery is of shepherds and sheep. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, how lovely. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful how God calls us sheep? And we have this view of like the fluffy, wonderful, cuddly nature of sheep. Well, if that is your view, I'm sorry, because this might alarm you. Let me disabuse you of that. The Bible uses the imagery of sheep, and it's not a compliment to the sheep. (laughs) I've got a, a friend of mine who is a sheep farmer back in the UK, and I sat down with him a few years ago and said to him, so tell, tell me about sheep. Peter. He said, well, let me tell you about sheep. They are the most defenseless, easily confused, and pitiable of all animals. <laughs> Don't blame me. He said it. He's the shepherd, okay? <laughs> he said they, they, they can't fight or defend themselves. When they're attacked, they're utterly defenseless. He said they can't even run away. Have you ever seen a sheep run? <laughs> it's quite funny, really. They can't find their way home when they get lost. They literally can't. They're they're useless. In fact, do you know what sheep do when they get lost, when they finally realize they're lost? They don't do anything. They just stand there. They will die standing. And they also can't upright themselves. If they fall over, which they are very prone to do, they can't get up. 
it's, it's kind of laughable when the sheep is on the ground and they're trying to get up. They, they can't do it. The shepherd has got to come and upright them so they can stand on two feet. They can't survive on their own. You don't find sheep on their own. Did you know that? They're never on their own. They're always in flocks and they're always together. They are so vulnerable to attack. So can you see, this imagery is not a compliment to us. It's not saying, oh, you cuddly, lovely, wonderful Christians. It's saying you're sheep and you are in need of something. And here's the third most remarkable thing. We have a shepherd. You see, every sheep, you never find a sheep without a shepherd. You don't. Sheep, you, you, you cannot, you, go, you traverse the world. Come to Wales, we've got lots of sheep. You, you'll never find a sheep without a shepherd. They'll be dead without the shepherd. They always have a shepherd. And this psalm, the, you know, on one hand, it's showing us a mirror and saying, look how defenseless and pitiable and helpless you are. On the other hand, it's saying, in your defenselessness, in, in, in your pitiable nature, you've got the one thing you need. You've got a shepherd who looks after you. Let's think about how this shepherd looks after us in this wonderful psalm this morning. I'm going to draw out three things, and here's the first one. Our shepherd provides for us. Verses 1 to 3. Our shepherd provides. He is a shepherd who gives provision for his sheep. And note with me who it is, first of all, that's giving the provision. Did you notice that? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And behind that word, in your English Bible translations, it should be capitalized, L-O-R-D capitalized, because it's denoting a special Hebrew word. It's not Elohim, the God who creates everything. It's not Adonai, the God who rules over everything. It's Yahweh, the God who loves his people. The covenant God who's promised, I'm going to be yours and you are going to be mine forever and forever and forever. And it's that God, the Yahweh God, who has stepped in and said, I'm going to be your shepherd. It's amazingly comforting to us that God himself shepherds his sheep. You know, we often talk, don't we, in Christianity about our relationship with God, our personal relationship with him. And so we should. That's a great thing. But did you know that God has a personal relationship with you? And that actually, that's more important. That his hold of you, his promises for you, his work in you is more important. You know why? Because sometimes I get up in the morning and I don't love God as much as I should. And sometimes I get up in the morning and like a sheep, I will follow a trail where it'll lead me to death and destruction. And I need my shepherd to come and get me. And he does. Because the, 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 the message of the Bible is, I will be your God. And I will come after you. And I will love you. And I will protect you. And I will be there for you. It's amazing actually in this psalm. Because... The Lord, the name Yahweh, is only used twice. Did you notice? It's at the beginning at the end. At the very beginning, the Lord is my shepherd, and at the end, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. And it's like David, in the poetry of this psalm, in the very structure of this psalm, is saying the Lord envelops his people. 
He, he, he takes them around himself. He puts his arms around them. He's at the beginning and he's at the end. And everything in between he is involved in. And he is providing for us. So what does he provide then? Well, we're told, aren't we? We're told four things he provides. First of all, he provides rest. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This is a picture of tranquility and rest. Beside still waters is, is literally beside the waters of rest. Beside the waters of rest. The sheep would have traveled for hours trying to find good pasture land, being led by the shepherd. And the shepherd knows they're tired. The shepherd knows their weakness. He knows their limitation. And so he says, here, here's some still waters. Rest yourself. Isn't it amazing in our culture today, I don't know about you, but this is definitely true of the United Kingdom and Europe. We have very little rest. There is the busyness of life, this frenetic activity of get up and do this and do the other. Now, I'm not saying busyness is a bad thing, but our world doesn't have any idea of what rest actually looks like. The very things they promise as rest often don't satisfy, do they? When was the last time you, got, you went on holiday? Sorry, you might say vacation. You go on vacation. I, it's right, Aaron, I'm translating. Step in if you need to. You, you, you've, been, you've been looking forward to it, you've been working hard, this is the thing you've been wanting, you pack up, and that's strenuous enough, enough, especially if you've got kids, you travel, you get there, and then you realize, oh yeah, I'm here as well. And you don't get the rest you wanted. It's not as rest, maybe you have a bit of rest, a bit of change. But God provides rest for us. He says, come and rest your souls, your lives in me. He doesn't just provide rest, he provides sustenance. I shall not want. That's what verse, this verse is about. And verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He's providing everything that I need. And doesn't our lives revolve around that? I know this is very simple and basic, but our lives revolve around food. It's amazing. You know, I come over across the pond and you know, I, I'm meeting people and I'm at the, the General Assembly and I'm meeting people from Deer Creek and Everything revolves around food. What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for second breakfast? What am I going to have for lunch? Dessert? Dinner? Supper? High tea? The whole shebang. That's, our lives actually revolve around food, don't they? And here God is saying, I'm going to provide it for you. I'm going to give you your daily bread. This is why Christians give thanks at a meal. We say grace. It's not some sort of tradition that we kind of do, some kind of virtue signaling that I'm a Christian. It is a genuine expression of God has provided this for me and I'm thankful. Another meal for me to eat and not go hungry for a few more hours. And that's our God, our shepherd. Did you know that? Every day when you get up and eat your Cheerios or your bagels or yeah, cook breakfast, whatever you do. If you haven't had a cooked breakfast, you really do need to come to UK. It's wonderful stuff. Don't touch black pudding. It's horrible. But the rest of it is fantastic. God is saying every day we eat, every snack we have, every sip of clean water we enjoy, God is saying, I'm shepherding you. I'm providing for you. I'm giving to you. He also gives us restoration. This is what he provides in verse 3. 
he restores my soul. There's some ambiguity here in the text. Is it that he's retrieving a lost sheep or is he reviving a disheartened sheep? In a sense, it doesn't matter because he does both. When the lost sheep stray, he goes after them. You remember what Jesus says? I'll leave the 99 and go after the one because every single last, most insignificant one of God's children are precious to him and he won't lose one of them. He'll come after you. He'll pursue you. He'll get you and he'll bring you back. He will restore you. And sometimes that involves sin, doesn't it? Sometimes we're we're caught in sinful situations of our own making. And yet the wonderful promise of God is, I will restore you. There is grace sufficient. Come back to me and find the restoration that you need. Rest, sustenance, restoration, and a fourth thing, guidance. You notice he says here in the end of verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his sake. You know, the last thing you should do with your life is follow a sheep. Don't follow a sheep. They follow each other, and they get lost and eaten. That's not good. You need to follow the shepherd. And here he says, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to go ahead of you. That's what one of the things the shepherd does. He literally goes ahead of the sheep. He walks ahead and he shows them. I was watching this movie recently, not a movie, a kind of a documentary about the shepherd who, who doesn't have a home. He lives in, in the Alps um, in Europe and, and he literally doesn't have a, you know, a postal address. He, he lives on the mountainside with his sheep. The whole of his life he's with his sheep. There's a few huts he knows about that he'll stay in. And it's this amazing thing. He has thousands of sheep. And he walks ahead of them. And all he has to do is call, and they all just scurry after him. And here God is saying, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. And how does God lead us, and how does God guide us? With his word. He's given us his word. This is is our guide. This is our light. This is how he shepherds us. Did you know every single Sunday at Deer Creek... As Dwayne and Daniel and Tim and Aaron and others are opening up God's word, the shepherd is saying to you, here is the safe path for life. Every time in your homes or as families you open up God's word and read it and think about it and believe it and try to put it into practice, the shepherd is saying, this is the way of life for you. Can you see here in verses 1 to 3, the shepherd's provision? He gives us everything that we could possibly need. Did you know that? Our world bombards us, doesn't it? Bombards us with options, with attractive ways of satisfying our souls. Pursue this. Pursue a career. Invest in your family. Become a celebrity. Become a multimillionaire. Have a successful business. Have a wonderful academic career. No, don't mishear me. None of those in and of themselves are wrong. I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for godly Christian ambition and an enjoyment of God's blessings. Here's the problem, is when we invest, we make them God. When we idolize them, when we take the gifts from God, the giver, and we say, thank you so much, dear shepherd, I'm now going to worship these and invest our happiness in them. No, the happy happy person 
man, woman, and child, is someone who, who can hold that tension, who can say, God has given me these gifts and I'm going to delight in them. He's given me a great career and I'm going to use it for his glory. He's given me opportunities in, in academia. I'm going to use, he's given me certain gifts and abilities or with my family, my children, my home. I'm, but you don't make them your idol. You worship God and say, thank you so much. What a blessing. It's he who provides. Notice, secondly, the shepherd's provision, first of all, but secondly, and perhaps even more wonderfully, the shepherd's presence. The shepherd's presence. This is in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Near Bethlehem, where David would have uh, taken his sheep and shepherded his sheep, there's a known valley that shepherds pass through. It's dark and dangerous. And it's possible that David was referring to this. Here, wild animals lurked. There are treacherous caves that abounded and flash floods threatened. And yet David is saying the shepherd can go through those valleys, through those, those dangerous times with his sheep, because he knows that God is with him. Now this hints at a reality to the Christian life that it's incredibly important we get. Uh, see, in the verses 1 to 3, God is going to provide. He's going to provide everything we need. And so you could then think, well, the Christian life just goes from one glory to another glory. But we know, don't we, if you're a Christian at all, that the Christian life sometimes is very, very hard. That it's not plain sailing. That it's not from glory to glory to glory. Sometimes a Christian life can feel like going from one crisis to the next crisis to the next crisis. So much so that you think, Lord, where are you? You feel like you're going through the valley, through the darkness. Am I right? Of course, this is native to the Christian life. God promises us wonderful blessings, and yet until glory itself, which we're going to get to, it's not all going to be plain sailing. It's going to be hard. Danger lurks. Our ultimate enemy, the devil, and death itself threatens. But God promises to be with us through it all. It's interesting in this psalm, the English doesn't bring it out, but that phrase, you are with me, is right in the center. Before it, there are 26 Hebrew words. After it, there are 26 Hebrew words. And it's like David is saying, this is the center point. This is the heartbeat. This is the pulse beat of everything. And what is it? God is with us. God is with us. You see, God doesn't promise to preserve us from all the ills and difficulties and trials and sufferings that is, is native to being human and living in a fallen world. He doesn't preserve us from those, but he will be with us through them. He will be with us through them. Even the description of death here, did you notice? It's a shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. It's hinting that death threatens, but actually doesn't have any substance to it. That has become true in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, hasn't it? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful privilege as a minister of the gospel to do funerals and to stand looking into the grave as the coffin with the beloved 
mother or father or child or auntie or uncle gets lowered in and to be able to read out loud the words of Jesus Christ, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet you will live. There's real hope because death for the Christian is but a vapor. It's but a movement from this life to the next because Christ has risen again and because God is with us. And you notice, therefore, we have nothing to fear. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We can face the realities and the horrors and the struggles and the sufferings of this life simply because God is with us. And this is where we've got to be really careful. I'm not saying that God kind of infuses in Christians this kind of unusual courage this kind of bold X-Men ability, so that when the suffering strikes, you can kind of look in the mirror and beat your breast and go, well, I'm, I can do it. Oh, no, no, that's not what God's saying here. You remain weak. I remain weak. But it's when we look to him. It's when we trust in him. When we look to his provision and his shepherding, that he is with us. It's his presence that gives us the courage and the ability and the strength to get through those trials. I don't know if you've heard of the Christian historian. He's an early Christian historian called Eusebius. He lived in the third or fourth century in the Middle East. He wrote a very um, influential history of the Christian church up to that period. Well, he was uh, threatened by the then emperor Valens, his name was, He was threatened to have all his goods confiscated. He was threatened to be tortured. He was threatened with exile and even death if he didn't give up his preaching, teaching, and living for Christ. And this is how Eusebius responded. Listen to these words. He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. What a wonderful statement. Do we fear banishment, torture, death? Of course we do. Of course we do. And yet with God's presence, we can face the worst that this world can throw at us. Whether it is the outright torture that our brothers and sisters are experiencing in places like China and North Korea and Pakistan and Eritrea. Or simply the difficulties in this life of of, of health issues or financial problems or concerns for family and friends or uh, wanting loved ones to become Christians or whatever it may be. We can face them all because God is with us. You know what I love about these verses is that there's a, there's a subtle changing, and forgive the grammar, of pronouns. Did you notice that? In verses 1 to 3, it's he. It's talking to God there. He is my shepherd. He leads me. He guides me. That's third person. When you get to verse 4, do you notice what happens? It changes to second person. For you are with me. And it's almost like in the grammar giving us this visual picture because sometimes the shepherd goes ahead, as I've already said. Do you know what sometimes when the sheep are troubled, when, the sheep, when there are wolves around, do you know what the shepherd does? He walks in amongst the sheep. He comes beside them. 
He's behind them and he's around them. And the grammar is communicating a wonderful truth about God that sometimes he's our shepherd and he leads and he provides and he's ahead. But when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, he comes among us. He's with us. It's a wonderful thing to visit Christians who are close to death, maybe terminally ill or whatever it may be. And so often, so often you feel like You've got to go and help them and give a word of encouragement and, and, and say something or be something to, to, to uphold them. And you walk away and think, goodness, I did nothing. I gained everything. Because God was with them. And you entered the presence of God with his, his dear, precious child who's about to be taken to glory. And you got that close to him. It's when we're going through our worst trials, God will be closest to us. Even the valley of the shadow of death. What a comfort this should be. Our God is with us. Our God is with us. And you know what? When you have God, when he's with you, you may have lots of other blessings, but you don't actually need them. God himself is enough. God himself is enough. Do you believe that? Do you know that? One day, every single one of us will be stripped of everything. Our goods, our possessions, our homes, our family. It'll either be death or it'll be the return of Jesus Christ. And we will stand before our God naked with nothing. But we won't have nothing, will we? We'll have God. And he will welcome us as his children. I love the story of a missionary. A British missionary, his name was Alan Gardner. He lived in the 1860s. Was anyone alive in the 1860s? If you were, come and tell me afterwards. We'll get you to the hospital quickly. <laughs> Lived in the 1860s. He felt the Lord call him to mission work, particularly to South America, to the very southern tip, Picton Islands in South America. It took him seven years to raise enough money to go. One reason why I remember him and love him is because a dear old lady uh, donated 700 pounds sterling for him to go. Now, 700 pounds sterling is not, you know, it's the price of a, tra of a uh, plane ticket to uh, America, which is too much, but we won't get into that. Uh, it was a lot of money back then, a huge amount of money. So on the basis of this gift from this woman who lived in Cheltenham, where I used to serve, this old lady, he went with his family, he had a wife and several children, but also several other missionaries. Uh, the, the money they'd raised only allowed them to buy six months of supplies. You need, you need to realize how cut off these islands were. They had to take everything they needed with them. So they got there, they were dropped off by a boat, and the captain of the boat promised him, I'll be back in six months with more supplies. That never happened. The captain of the boat never turned up. And not only that, he, he found that the locals were very hostile. They didn't kill him, but they, didn't, they weren't interested in befriending them, in helping them, in sharing food with them, in hearing the gospel. And so the six months went by, the nine months went by, and people started dying. He buried his wife, he buried his children, and he buried every other missionary. He didn't see one convert. Do you know we found his diary? And do you know what the last entry in his diary was? Before he died, it was this. I am overwhelmed by the love of Christ. Here's a man whose life was a disaster not seen one convert. He'd taken his wife and his family to a foreign land to die, his friends. He hadn't established a church. 
He'd had no success whatsoever. Everything he'd hoped and dreamed of were utterly ruined. But in his dying breath, he could write, I've got Jesus, and that's more than enough. That's more than enough. And some of you will know what the church is doing in South America now. Do you know the Brazilian Presbyterian Church are opening a new church every week because of men like Alan Gardner? He saw no fruit, but God used his sacrifice to bring an abundance. There are millions in South America come to know the Lord Jesus Christ now because of his faithfulness. But even as he had lost everything, he knew God was with him. Do you know as a Christian that God is with you? He's your shepherd. And that means you can face anything. You can face anything. Because God is your God and shepherd. We've looked at provision and we've looked at presence. Just briefly, finally in verses 5 to 6, we've got promises. As if that wasn't enough, God makes some promises. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You see, now, no longer are there enemies around. No longer there are worries and concerns. The danger has gone and been dealt with. Now they're feasting. Now they are basking in the blessings of our God. And look at some of the blessings. A table. God promises to, this, the table is an incredibly important idea in the Bible. It's the time of fellowship. It's the place of communion. This is true, isn't it? This is why it's a wonderful privilege to invite someone into your home and to break bread with them, to have food together. Because it's as if you're, you're, you're welcoming, welcoming them into the very heart of your life and saying, let me fellowship with you. You're treating them as, as an honored guest. You're, you're saying, I want, to, I want to know you and be with you and spend time with you. And that's what God does with us. Just come and eat at my table. He anoints our head with oil. That, that, that imagery is associated in the Bible with gladness. The gladness of oil and the anointing of it. And as if there wasn't enough, my cup overflows. It conveys abundance. Provision, people ask, don't they? Are you a, a half-empty glass kind of guy or a half-full kind of guy? The answer should always be, my cup is always overflowing. It's neither half empty or half full, because as a Christian, God has promised to abundantly bless and give me everything that I need. Now, this is giving us a future orientation. Giving us a future orientation. God has promised to be with us and provide all we need in this life, but he's lifting up our eyes to see that there is yet more to come. That at some time in the future, whether it is through death or through the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will know a, a taste of blessing that we can only begin to imagine what it's going to be like. And that's why as Christians we need a future orientation. We need to be constantly reminded that there is more to life than this. I don't know about you, but I don't know if you have these over here. But in the UK, you have people driving in their cars, and they've got these car bumper stickers, either on the back, or sometimes they're right across the windscreen. And they, they read, one life, live it. Man, whenever I see that, I almost have a car accident. I mean, that is a false, horrendous theology. One life, live it? You need to wind down your window and shout, wrong! 
One life, live it? Absolutely not. We don't live for this life, though we look to God to bless us in it. We have another life coming that's going to be greater and more glorious than even the blessings that we've even begun to taste this side of glory. We have this picture here of a meal. And if you know your Bibles, there's a meal at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, where the Lamb sits down with all his people, every last one of them, and we enjoy forever and forever the presence and blessing of our God. What are you looking forward to? We need to remind ourselves daily that this isn't it. That one day, we will be with our God. If we're Christians, we will be with our God forever and forever. And that changes the perspective of what's happening in this life. It gives us a future orientation that God is trying to give us here. No wonder the psalmist ends with a personal commitment. Did you see that? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If this is our God, I want to be with him. I want to serve him. And I want to love him. We've seen the provision and the presence and the promise. Let me draw this to a conclusion. Because it wouldn't be right if I didn't move forward to the New Testament. Because Jesus Christ comes, and what does he say in John chapter 10? He says, I'm the shepherd. This is about Jesus, this psalm. When we sing, the Lord is my shepherd... We can sing it about Jesus. Jesus came to be the shepherd of his people. This psalm, we could almost go, I'm not going to do it, don't worry. We could almost go back through the psalm, just simply referring it to Jesus Christ, because he says, I am the shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. There's actually another passage in Scripture which somewhat more subtly draws this out. But if you have time this afternoon, go and read Mark 6 from verse 30 onwards. Some of you will know this passage very well. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And and Jesus actually says, the crowd, he sees the crowds, 5,000 people and more coming to him. And he says of them, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then Mark, in verse 39, gives this tiny little detail that's easy to miss. But when you see it, it really grabs you. Let me read Mark 6, verse 39 to you. Then he, that's Jesus, commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass the green grass. Now, why does Mark tell us he got them to sit on the green grass? You know why? He wants us to remember Psalm 23. He wants us to remember that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. He's making that connection. He's saying this Jesus who's about to feed the 5,000 and provide for them and give them rest and give them promise, is that Yahweh God of Psalm 23. So did you know this? That you have a God, you have a Jesus, who is your shepherd. And he loves you. He loves you so much more than you love him. He provides everything you need and more. He can't wait to come again and have you, every single last one of his blood-bought people, with him in heaven and the new earth forever with him and he's our shepherd when we go through trials and difficulties he leads us he guides us and he blesses us christian jesus is your shepherd i was sitting there thinking they got this crazy welshman over to preach 
And that's what he's got to say. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. You couldn't offer me a billion dollars to take this away. Because it's worth more than that. Jesus is our shepherd. God is our provision. He's with us and he protects us. I've got one more thing I've got to say before I end. And this will blow your mind away. See, Jesus is our shepherd. But what did he do on the cross? He became a sheep. He became a sheep. Isaiah 53 uses that wonderful passage about the suffering of Jesus Christ. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep who's done before his shearers. In Psalm 22, he cries out, just a psalm before this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And isn't it amazing that in, in these psalms, you've got Psalm 22, which is about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and immediately after you've got Psalm 23, as if saying to us, remember what he was doing on the cross. He became a lamb. He became a sheep for us. And that's stunning, isn't it? It's not just that our God is our shepherd. Our shepherd became a sheep and laid his life down so that we could become his sheep and know him as our shepherd. Jesus sang this psalm. Jesus read this psalm. Jesus knew this psalm on the cross as he became the lamb that would die to take away all of our sins. Provision, presence, promise. We've got everything we need, haven't we? And that's why we sing. And that's why we worship. That's why we trust. That's why we tell others the gospel. It's all about God, our shepherd king. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, you indeed are great and glorious and wonderful and abundant and above all that we can think or speak. And we simply want to thank you that we can know you and not just know you as a creator God, but know you as a shepherd king. We praise you for a Jesus who became a sheep, who trusted you, who laid his life down for our sake. Oh Lord, if, if any of us are discouraged this morning, if any of us are doubting or struggling or suffering, if any of us have a really tough week ahead or days ahead, please would you encourage us and comfort us with these words, with this truth and this reality that you are our shepherd. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.